Internet Brand Strategist Sandra Beck interviews top business coaches, speakers, authors, and thought leaders to bring you the best business tips, tricks, and techniques to give your idea the best possible chance for success. From writing your first novel to telecommuting from home to taking your small business to infinity and beyond. Now here's your host, Sandra Beck. Hey, everybody, this is Sandra Beck, and I have such a treat today, and we are going to be talking with an, an, an author, an advocate, a really smart guy. He's from my hometown area, so there's nothing I love more than talking to one of my homies and one of my, you know, we're almost the same age. We literally grew up, what, maybe 15 miles apart? Yeah. Yep. So I'm so excited because it feels like a little bit of home for me. And Steve Majors is a writer. He's an author. He's been in the New York Times, the Washington Post, NBC Think, HuffPost and Medium. And his experience growing up as a white appearing mixed race child in an all black family, as well as his life as a gay man raising two black daughters in an interracial interfaith family. You guys know this is right in my wheelhouse because we are all one and oneness doesn't mean sameness. If you don't take away anything else from today's show, we are all one people. Oneness does not mean sameness. Steve, welcome to the show. Sandra, thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad, so pleased to be here. Well, and I have to say, you are beautiful. You have beautiful skin, beautiful teeth. You are a beautiful man inside and out. And I cannot believe that you have gone through what you've gone through and you come with grace. You come with peace. You are articulate. Like I'm just really blessed to meet you. And I want to hear your journey. I want to hear your story. Well, thanks. Well, you know, Cindra, I, you know, I've been on this planet 55 years and I'd like to say sort of all the grace and all the great things that you say about me were always true, but you know, I, was kind of an awkward kid. Um, I was a little overweight. I had acne. I wore glasses. But I think the biggest challenge for me, believe it or not, was the color of my skin. Um, not just, you know, how I came out in the world. I mean, uh, you know, we're all created a certain way and we come out the way we come out. But it was more in how people perceived me. So, you know, um, I grew up in an all black family. Uh, my mother was black. All of my older siblings were fully black. Um, I was the product of a, um, a, a brief relationship that my mother had with a white man, very brief. So brief that um, I don't even think that he knew that she was pregnant. And um, I never met the man, don't know the man's name. But what I do know is that when I came into the world 55 years ago, uh, my skin was so pale that I was white appearing. And, you know, the folks on the other end, you know, listening to this podcast can't see me. Um, but, you know, I would tell you just um, very fair skin. Steve, I'm just going to stop you for a second right now, because now is a really good time to thank our sponsor. And our sponsor is amazing. Our sponsor is AARP. And, you know, as we get older, we're more concerned about affordable health care, lower prescription costs, and protecting Social Security and Medicare. And AARP advocates for you. I'm a member, and I'm over 50. And AARP not only advocates for you, it offers financial and job resources, fraud protection, 
Foundation help, information on joining local volunteer groups, and so much more because AARP knows you and I have a lot of good years ahead. Now, I really like their family caregiving support because I am a sandwich mom. I have school-age kids, and then I also care for my 88-year-old dad. And being stuck in the middle there, I need a lot of support. And AARP provides that family caregiving support. They also have a job board. They have a resume advisor. They give driver safety tips. There's also financial planning, retirement, and social security resources. And you get their magazine delivered to your door with news and interviews and articles that are relevant to me. And did you know that they are the largest advocacy group for people over 50? And it was founded in 1958 to address the needs of middle-aged and elderly people. And it is nonprofit, nonpartisan, and it is just amazing. And I really, really encourage you to try the benefits yourself. Go to aarp.org slash coach talk and join for just $12 your first year with automatic renewal. You'll get a second membership for free plus AARP the magazine and a free gift. That's aarp.org slash coach talk. That's aarp.org slash coach talk. And there's also some other great benefits. You can have a 61% on average savings on prescription drugs not covered by Medicare and offer up to 15% off meals at participating restaurants, discounts on thousands of hotels nationwide on eye exams and eyeglasses, and there are exclusive insurance plans that cover everything from health to home to pets to auto. If you want to know more about this and you want to know more about the family caregiving support, all the different great benefits that I use, try the benefits for yourself. Go to aarp.org slash coach talk and join for just $12 your first year with automatic renewal and you'll get a second membership for free plus AARP, the magazine and a free gift. That's aarp.org slash coach talk. Now we're talking today to Steve Majors and he's the author of High Yella. Now that's spelled H-I-G-H Y-E-L-L-A. And it's a memoir about growing up as a white passing child in an impoverished black family. And he talks about the painful recollections. And Steve, I just have to tell you, your story is so amazing. Uh, There are a lot of mixed race people in this world. And some of them, you can tell that, you know, they are probably in their genetic background. They have all sorts of different stuff that makes, makes them up. Um, whatever that was, that sort of bit of melanin was missing from my skin. Um, and so I was white appearing. So the challenge I had as a kid growing up is we grew up in a, um, a rural, mostly white community, and I lived in an all black family. And so you can imagine sort of the challenges that uh, presented, how do I explain myself to the world? How do I explain to people that, you know, the woman who stands beside me in a grocery store um, is, is not a maid or not a babysitter or not a neighbor, but is my mother. And um, how do I um, embrace my own blackness, my own identity when I don't look like the people that I love? And so it's taken me a long time to get to a place of feeling that I embrace my whole self and understand my identity and know where I um exist in the world um, but that wasn't always the case well and i i want to like give you the biggest hug and the biggest apology from where i'm from because i know that neck of the woods and i know how hard it was even on people who were you know within the spectrum of what they considered was for that area so if it was hard for somebody like me who's clearly not you know your usual girl 
it had to be a million times more difficult. So on behalf of my whole town and area, I apologize for the behaviors of the people who didn't know any better. And that's why we have shows and books like yours today, so that 50 years later, 50 years from today, Steve, I pray that we are not having the same conversation. Yeah, and, and I, 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 I don't think so. I think we're on a different path today than we were where we were 50 years ago. Um, there was a recent census report out this fall that showed that mixed race people are um, among the fastest growing segment of the population in the United States right now. So there are many more people like me out there. Right, and my kids, you know, we've got what was really fun is getting my kids genetics done and seeing like this just explosion of of, of races, of countries, of, you know, it was so exciting for me because, you know, I am a oneness girl and I know that oneness doesn't mean sameness. That's my theme for this year, Steve. That's why I say it so much on the show because I really want people to take that away that our diversity is what makes us strong. Our differences are what makes us strong. And when we can embrace that, that's where the magic happens. Yeah, agreed. And it's interesting that you brought up sort of um, genetic testing because, you know, that is one of the drivers of sort of the census data. More and more people are getting their genetic DNA tested and they're finding that um, that they are made up of so much more than they originally thought. And they're feeling more confident in their ability to um, categorize themselves as multiracial or mixed race or two or more races. You know, Steve, as we talk about DNA redefining us as people, I really want to thank our sponsor today because they're in perfect alignment with what we're talking about. And let's talk about what is professional today. On LinkedIn, important conversations are happening around what it means to be professional. You know, because these things like we're talking about today should not stunt career development and growth, and instead they should enhance it as we show up on our own terms. And members are even putting what's most important important to them into their job titles with things like, you know, if it was me, I would put podcast host slash advocate slash military mom slash veteran caregiver slash, I don't know, the, the list is endless. And professional is ours to define and our authentic self is our professional self. So if your LinkedIn doesn't reflect who you really are, update your job title. I want you guys to post your truth, show the world the authentic professional you, and join in the conversations redefining professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, welcome professionals. You know, Steve, I love how these companies, these companies like LinkedIn are really getting on board with all of the things that are happening as we're changing. And, you know, DNA is such a crazy thing. And when we find out we are all related, I think it really causes a paradigm shift with many people, don't you? Um, those folks were probably out there. Some of them are in their 50s and probably lived their entire lives thinking that they were just one thing. And so folks of all ages are now looking into their own DNA and finding out that, you know, we are all made up of, of so much more than what, what, it, what appears on the outside. That's right. And, and what is also through family lore, because I got my, I care for my 87 year old daddy lives in my house with me. I'm soul supporting. And I have my two sons that are now 15 and 18 ones off to college, but that was our nuclear unit. My dad, you know, we went from eight to 80 in our household. So, and it was funny because for Christmas one year, I decided to gift my dad, me and my kids 
you know, this ancestry test and to find out like who our ancestors were. And my father, who's first generation German, he's like, I don't need this. I don't need this. I'm German. I'm German. Okay. So, and he used to give my mom a hard time because my mom, her parents were born in Poland and the Ukraine. She was a single mother. She didn't know much about her father. Well, we couldn't get her genetics done because she passed on, but he used to give my mom a terrible time because she was Ukrainian Polish. Okay. So what do we get? You know, God has a sense of humor. The results come back. What is my father? But he is more Polish, Russian, Hungarian than the Germanic countries. Oh, my gosh. And it was really hard for him. I mean, his face was all scrunched up and he's like, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. And then we found out, you know, my mother had to be 27 to 29% Jewish. And, you know, my kids are half Jewish, you know, so it was just very interesting to look at all this country mix that there was Norwegian, there was English, and, you know, it was so fun. And the best one was, though, my mom, I know she was kind of laughing in her grave, because of all the years my dad made fun of her for being Polish, um, you know, my dad's Polish. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, you know, and Sandra, I mean, those tools didn't exist for me 55 years ago. And I think, you know, that's really sort of um, a through line of the book is my search for my identity. Um, And so, you know, I I told your listeners again that, you know, clearly I didn't look like my family um, and uh, my family didn't look like most of the people in the community in which we lived but sort of a complicating factor is nobody told me that I was mixed race. It was oh. my, my birth was a secret. And so um, probably as early as five or six years old, I was able to look in the mirror and be able to see clearly, I don't look like these people who are my family. Where did I come from? But because of the shame of my birth um, and so much about my family, again, we dealt with quite a bit of trauma. There were other things going on in our lives at that time people didn't want to admit what was staring them right in the face. Oh, Clearly wow. you must have a different father. So, so did you say, ever think you were adopted? Oh yeah. And you know, um, one of the first memories that I have, and I retell this story in the book is, you know, standing outside a movie theater in downtown Batavia. And you know, clearly this idea had been percolating in my five-year-old brain for some time, but I didn't know how to give words to it. And I remember turning to my sister and asking, am I adopted? And she was very angry. Um, And she couldn't understand where that question came from. And I explained, well, kids say I must be adopted because I don't look like you. I don't look like Ma. I don't look like our brothers, uh, my, our brothers. And, um, and I said, you know, my skin looks different than you. And the message to her and for my family was you are black. Don't ever forget it. And so that, that, that was internalized with me at a very young age. I am black. And um, I mean, it's something I'm very proud of. I, you know, although I come from a mixed race background, culturally, I feel black. I grew up in a black family. I grew up around black people. Um, So the world doesn't see me that way, but that's my experience of who I am. And so it's, it's cause for some challenges over the years. And um, again, I mean, I'm just, I'm grateful that other people don't have to go through that sort of search for identity that I had to, that I sort of tell, retell in the book. Um, but it was a very real thing for me. Well, and I 
can imagine how difficult it would be to look in the mirror and see one thing and then have this narrative around you tell you another thing. I can't imagine that felt good psychologically. Like, you know, that's good. There's a disconnect there of going, I look in the mirror, I see what I see with my own eyes and I see the reaction of the world to me. And then you're telling me this other narrative. Yeah, exactly. And you know, the, the title of the book, High Yella, sort of gets at that. Like High Yella is a term, I, I don't, you know, it's, um, I wouldn't call it pejorative. I mean, my family jokingly and lovingly used it on me. It's one that's used often in the in the black community to denote sort of skin tone. Um, and so, um, you know, that's what my grandmother called me, this idea of sort of very sort of like pale skin, this high yella and um, but it also, you know, I think the other thing, the unstated message there was that, you know, um, that highness, like set apart, right? Highborn or, or, or whatnot, even though that isn't what she said, she certainly, you know, made me feel like I was no better than anyone else. But there was this sense that I was sort of set apart, you know, like, oh, you've got the light skin and the good hair, you know, this idea of good hair. Um, which is sometimes prevalent in the back, black community, um, is something also that I wrestled with because if nothing else, I wanted, I wanted nothing more than to be just like my brothers and my sister, but everything that the world, my family, and my skin told me made me feel like I, wasn't, I was just markedly different from what, you know, based on what they told me. Well, and as a mother, you know, as a mother looking at your baby pictures there, and I see you with your brothers and sisters, I see, you know, five beautiful, healthy, gorgeous kids. And, you know, my heart breaks for this little boy who is so gorgeous, you know, he's healthy, he's beautiful, he's got a wonderful smile. I mean, that's the one thing that I have to tell you, when, when the camera first turned on, and you smiled, I thought, what a light unto the world. Oh, well, thank you. And you know, I think, you know, that, um, that picture is misleading as well. I mean, it's the only family picture I have of myself and my siblings and my mother, um, um, to this day. Um, we experienced quite a bit of trauma. I mean, we grew up in abject poverty and um, that intergenerational poverty and I think the racism that they experienced, um, you know, not just my immediate family, but my extended family who are oh, all sure. living in Western New York from Batavia to Buffalo to Rochester um, had really um, profound effects on us. And so, you know, my family dealt with, you know, addiction and abuse um, and mental health issues. And so you add that, you know, that little boy with the smile in that picture, he was also not just experiencing an identity crisis. You know, he was going through just, um, you know, all kinds of crises. Um, and, um, and so the story, you know, Hayala is, is as much about my search for identity. It's also a reflection on the nature of family mm -hmm. and intergenerational trauma and how those things can get passed down. Right, and ancestral wounding. That, oh, yeah. you know, you can have a, a great-grandparent or grandparent. You know, I have on one side of my family, on my mom's side, everybody's single moms. And now I find myself, two kids, 
a single mom. Like, how is this possible? And nobody gets up in like, you know, kindergarten and writes the, I want to be a nurse. I want to be a struggling single mom. Like nobody writes these things, but yet there is an ancestral tie-in. How is it my mother and her mother left the Ukraine and then her mother, Anna, you know, that came along with them. Like there's no men in that line. Like somebody in my ancestral line jacked it so that there's a whole bunch of single moms down that line. Like we're doing something wrong and and something is passed down and it's not genetic. You can't have genetic single moms. So there is something about this ancestral. And I actually went and, you know, this is something that. I, I, I talk about, but you can, people can judge me all they want. You know, it worked for me. I went and had an ancestral cleaning. I went and had, you know, I, I had past life regressions. I went back and did some ancestral work to try to heal my broken family. Um, you know, thank God I'm on the radio and I have access to all these cool tools. Now, here's the thing, Steve, I don't know if it worked or not, but it made me feel better and it gave me hope. I only have sons, so I can't have single daughters. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's that's going to end this. I hope it ends this for my family line because it sucks for the kids. Yeah. And, you know, I think my my tool was writing this book in a way that was sort of coming to terms and reconciling myself with all that had transpired in my past and my family's past and, and healing from that. And I'll tell you, so, you know, you mentioned at the top, uh, my husband and I have two daughters, they're both adopted. And this, um, I think I got to a point in my life where I saw some of the symptoms of the trauma that I was experiencing. I was inadvertently passing on some of those things to my own children. Yes. And that became a moment of reckoning for me where I had to really, you know, pardon the pun, look in the mirror again and say, um, who am I? What, what kind of father am I? And how much of the parent I am today is predetermined by how I was parented and how much of it can I take responsibility for and really change the narrative of my family story? Absolutely. And I think many of us who've come from different types of trauma, um, my family were hitters, you know, they hit my neighbor hit his kids with a strap. Like, you know, there was a lot of violence and my mother was raised with violence. So one of the things that happened when I had my first son and I'm, you know, or actually I just had my second son. My first son was three years old and my infant was, was three months old and my husband had left. So here I am, lots of stress, lots of things. My first reaction when my toddler was acting up, I raised my hand like this and I saw my reflection. For those of you listening, I have my hand up by my ear, like I'm going to give somebody a good swat. And I saw myself in the reflection. I will never forget this over my kitchen sink because it was dark and I could see myself. And I thought, oh my God, I'm my mother. I'm my grandmother. Like, and, and, it, and I, I, I was sick to my stomach and I'm like, it stops. And I did start at that time. That's when I started motherhood talk radio, not because I felt I had anything to say to the airwaves, but I knew that I needed to get help. And if I needed to get help, there were other parents out there that needed that same help that weren't readers. So therefore, motherhood talk radio became a, and so did coach talk radio and powered up and, you know, military mom, all of these things devolved out of 
I don't want to be the product of my past. I want to do better. I want to know better. I want, there's families out there that don't hit their kids. So how do I do these things if my only model is to give you a good SWAT to get you in line? Yeah, absolutely. And again, I mean, I share that same experience. And there's a moment in the book too, where, you know, I, I had this sort of, you know, reckoning with myself because, you know, my uh, default was anger. You know, if a child is defiant, you know, it's force and anger that gets them, that compels them to do what you should do, what they need to do. And that was how I was raised. And so, you know, you know, my story is really one of, um, looking not just sort of the, the things that do get passed down, whether it's the genetics that determine your skin color or, you know, and make you look the same or look not. And the things that you can't see, that trauma that gets passed on. And, you know, I hope that ultimately it's, you know, it's a very, it's very raw and emotional in some points. Um, there are parts of it that are very, that, that can be a little difficult to read, but I think it's, Ultimately, it conveys a message of hope because I do believe in the strength of family. I, I do, um, I, I do celebrate all the wonderful gifts that my family gave to me. Um, they made me the incredible, you know, they made me the human being that I am today, and gave me the incredible life that I have. Um, they made sacrifices. Yes, they made mistakes. Yes, they were flawed people. But I'm a flawed person as well. Right. Um, and I, I can accept that and I can decide that every day I can be a better human being than I was the day before. That's right. That's right. And what I love about your story and what I love about you is the definition of family, because this is something I've been beaten on for 16 years. You define your family. You get to define this. So if you marry a man, you marry a woman, you marry, you know, however your combination wants to be. And your children get to be your bios or your adopted kids. Or how about this? In my family, we had kids come into our family. They were never formally adopted, but they came into the family. So are we supposed to define family by just a simple piece of paper or a simple set of biologics? Like, no, we get to define our family. And I also think as we become healthier and more whole, we get to choose our family because sometimes our families of origin might be better loved from afar. Doesn't love, mean we don't love them. Doesn't mean we don't want to be with them, but our family of origin can be loved from afar. I, I love that. I love that concept. And um, I wish I had known you and had all the insights that you had, um, um, you know, even 10 or 15 years ago. And I, you know, a lot of my family, unfortunately, has have passed on. Sure. Um, my, out of five siblings, there are only two of us left. Uh, my mother is gone. My grandparents are gone. A lot of my cousins are gone. But there was a, a time in my life when I ran away from my family out of shame. And I think there's a difference. You can run away and be ashamed. Or again, this concept that you talk about, about loving them from afar, which is a much more healthier way to think about it, I think is, is ideal. Um, it, it took me some time, but ultimately I did have to sort of reunite with them. Yes. That didn't mean that they were in my life um, all the time or in my life 
in, um, in close-up ways where I felt it wouldn't be healthy for them or for me, but I, I did, they were in my life. And so I think you, you, there, it's a false choice to either say that you can, you know, uh, be in relationship with your family or not be in relationship with your family. I do think that there is a middle ground, which you described as sort of loving them from afar and yes. figuring out the healthy ways in which you can be in relationship with them, which might not mean, you know, getting together for holidays or, you know, talking, you know, every week, you know, my husband um, talks to his family members every day. And I remember um, when I first met him, I'm like, what do you talk about? <laughs> what could you possibly have to talk about? And he would laugh at me. He goes, you go months, if not years without talking to your family. He goes, You're the oddity. I'm not the one who's strange here. Um, but isn't that remarkable that I thought it was so odd that he was somebody who was willing to talk to his family members every day. I thought that was strange. Um, I think that just speaks to just how fractured some of our families really are. Well, and, 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 you know, or there's a hybrid of where there are some of my family members I will or could talk to every day. But there's some that aren't, you know, there's, there's no blanket rule for this. And, you know, I'm not a Bible girl, but I do have one favorite Bible phrase that says above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. So mm. when you look at that heart that flows from it, and I tell this to parents, and even though I'm the confluence of two great religions, I have Christianity and Judaism in my DNA, in my household, in my lifestyle, which really is a hard thing for a lot of people to get their mind around that you could coexist peacefully within those two worlds. But it is above else, you know, um, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it because parenting takes heart relationships take heart creativity takes heart so anything that closes off your heart you have to guard from because you are here steve i am here to flow i'm here to flow love to flow shows to flow money into my accounts to pay for my children to pay for my whatever you know flow is flow so if you cut off my flow you've cut off my heart so I can love you from afar, but Steve, if you hurt me, if you get in the way of that flow, I will do literally what the Bible tells me, which is to guard my heart. Nowhere in the good book, and I talked to a rabbi about this a couple of weeks ago, a rabbi and a Jesuit priest, about guarding your heart. Like, what does that mean for both major religions? Means the same thing. God didn't put us on this earth to be hurt, humiliated, shut off, closed off. It's up to us to guard our heart. And guarding our heart means loving some people from afar. Just because you were born from this person or the sibling of this person does not give them the right to cut off your flow, to hurt your heart, to dim your light, whatever you want to call it. And we need to protect our hearts so that we can give that flow to the very people who need us, your little girls, my little boys. So if you get in the way of my flow, I will love you, but I will love you from afar. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Well, you know, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned sort of that you um, are an interfaith family. I mean, Hayella also um, not only talks about sort of my childhood, but also um 
the childhood of my children, my two daughters, and we are an interfaith household. My husband is Jewish. Our kids are being raised Jewish. Um, I'm Christian. And, you know, it, it, it also, we also are in the book. I also look at this idea of um, religious identity because, yes. you know, my kids, it was a very real thing for my children who, you know, my children are black. And um, so one of the things that they struggled with is what does it mean to be black and Jewish? You sure. know, um, not to mention, what does it mean being in a household where they're being raised by two dads? So and two different that, religions and two different religions. And so um, it explores this issue of identity through many different lenses. Um, but ultimately, it, it comes around to, I think, the point that I think you made so eloquently earlier that um, we we define our families. Yes. And we define who we are in our families and we define the relationship that we have in our families. And in the same way, I had to come to that understanding. My kids are coming to that understanding as well. Like, who are we as a family? Where do I belong in this family? What relationship do I ultimately want within this family? And I think it's a journey that all people, all families across this country go through, across the world. Across the world. Um, yeah, it's not just unique to me. Because that's the funny thing about identity. Like, identity is an illusion. Identity is a fantasy. You know, I don't know anyone that is so set in their identity that is a truly happy loving person. So as hokey as it sounds, we have to come from love first, especially if you're interfaith or interrelation. I have had people come up to me telling me I'm killing Jewish babies because I've polluted Judaism because I've given birth to two. And what's funny is my kids are now 67%, like, you know, according to the statistics, I'm like, well, they're more Jewish than not. And I'm not, you know, I'm not criticizing anybody, but when we start labeling, you know, when we start trying to classify people into groups, like what we call identity, because my kids do have questions about identity. And I'm like, you are who you are. You belong to the group that you want to belong to. Or yes, don't yes. belong to. Or how about this? Like my family, like because my family's broken, because my family's interface, because my family's had a lot of trauma with domestic violence and all these different things. When the kids and I would watch the Island of Misfit Toys, <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> that's your mom. Your mom's the doll, you know, with the broken yep. arm. And, you know, you can be the polka dot elephant or whatever. And I said, but you know what? We're all misfits. I don't care where you put it because if i if i'm the one classifying you steve it's my classification if it's somebody else's classification the rules are going to be completely different so if my classification is family is how we identify ourselves family is who we choose to break bread with i don't care about biologics your your russian born adopted cousin is no less family because we've identified the family we set the rules and i think that's one of the things like and if i could tell you um my boys are 15 and 18 they have run the gamut from all different belief systems, from atheist to Judaism, to Catholicism, back to Judaism, back to atheism. And you know what? That's good. 
Because they're thinking and they're making choices for what's best for them, not what's best for me, not what's best for grandma or grandpa, what's best for them. And despite everything you and your husband will do, your kids are going to grow up to be themselves. And that's a beautiful thing. So we love first and we try never to judge, but we can be discerning. Because that's the big thing in teaching my kids about differences, Steve. The hardest thing was when they get to that age, especially in high school, where everything is judgment. Don't judge this person. Don't judge this person. And it really comes down to a simple lesson in vocabulary. Judgment means that we're sitting in a position of power over another, and that is not good. But discerning means making decisions to keep yourself safe. And so understanding the difference between judgment and discerning and preparing your kids into the world where guess what? There is no real identity anymore. How many genders do we have now recognized by New York state alone? Yeah. 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 And I I just, again, even your identity as a family, that discerning, again, going back to what kind of family we're going to be, you know, I make this point in the book in Hayala that, you know, one day, you know, um, you know, our children are adopted and, you know, like many adopted children, they, their search for identity and their search for family is especially acute because there's that sense of loss. And I make the point that, you know, there have been times, especially now that they're teenagers where, you know, I felt that rejection as a parent and which is all very natural. But again, I think it's felt that much more acutely in families formed through adoption. And I've made the point that, you know, you will choose if we are your family and that's okay. Right. (laughs) It's okay. And you will choose your, like your birth family, you will choose what kind of relationship you want to have with them. And that's okay. And And my love for you will never change. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so for me, you know, you know, my family might not look like the families of your listeners. My story might be very different from the, the, you know, my upbringing and my childhood might look very different from um, the folks who might pick up a copy of Hayella and read it. But I believe that those themes are universal. Absolutely. themes of identity and family and love and um, self-determination, self-determination that you don't have to be your future, your trajectory in life certainly does, does not have to be determined um, completely by the circumstances under which you were born or the circumstances under which you were raised. Um, there does come a point of self-determination and you have to be willing to make those decisions sometimes if it takes you um, into different relationships with your family than you had intended. And I think that's a, a powerful thing that I, um, a powerful thing that I hope resonates with a lot of readers. Absolutely. Well, and I think you're right in our wheelhouse for the right kind of family for this show and the right kind of family for this listenership, because you are defining your family. 
And I have families who are married, who are unmarried, who are same sex, who are single parents by choice. And that was what Motherhood Talk Radio is about because motherhood is defined as any loving being. I don't care what gender you identify for. If you love and care for a child, because I've had to defend this, you know, over the years in the naming of my show, but if you love and care for a child, this show is for you. You know, 16 years later, I can't change the name of some of these shows because of indexing in the search engines. But at the end of the day, how we define ourselves, how we define our families, and who is our family is up to us. And nobody has any right, no government, no religious agents, no anybody has the right to govern love. Because that's what the word family is. It's supposed to be a group of people that I love, right? At its yeah. heart. So why, why is anyone else governing or judging my definition of love? And love is universal. And love is the only way to heal. I don't care whether it's addiction, whether it's domestic violence, whether it's, it's you know, any number of the evils we have in the world. What does it come down to? What is the only solution? To come to you with love. So it really does make the identity question really a moot point because the other thing I've learned and maybe you've learned about this too, maybe your experience is different than mine. I'd love to hear it. But my identity as a 15-year-old girl is very different than the 25-year-old, the 35, the 45, the 55. My identity has changed because I started to love myself the way I made. I'm not a freak. I'm not a, you know, I was the thinker in school that was, it is funny because my relationship in school with people was not really that great. Then all of a sudden I became a voice and I became published. I became this, I became that. And all of a sudden I have all these friends yeah. <laughs> you know, that I never had. And part of me is like, you know, when people come to me, they want me to, you know, donate money. They want me to sponsor their whatever. They want me to bring their friend on the show, whatever this funny thing is. And this is not, you know, to disrespect all people, but how am I popular at 54? <laughs> like I was the island of misfit toys. I had the, I was the one with the viewpoints that weren't agreed with. I was the one who didn't think right. Yeah. I, 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 again, I just, so much of what you're saying just resonates for me. And as I look back now, you know, uh, 55 years, um, that, um, that, you know, the person I am today, I'm just, I'm so different. I'm different than I was at 45 or at 35 sure. or 25. And I think we don't, we don't take into account how much we change as human beings That's and right. how much um, you, you hope that you sort of ever evolving and you're a better version of yourself. And um, I'd like to think that is true for me. And I'd like to think that's true for my family as well. You know, the, the book, I, you know, the full title is Hayella, a modern family memoir. Um, because it's, it's meant not just to be my story, but the story of my family, the story of all who came before me, um, the story of my, um, the folks who are um, still alive with me and the, and the story of my kids and those who are going to come after me. Right. And I'd like to believe that we are bet, you know, the best possible versions of ourselves and that we're just going to continue 
um, growing and becoming better people. But, um, you know, um, I, what you might not have shared sort of with your listeners, I'm a marketer at heart. So one of the things I want to make sure we get in before we close out our time again is, um, you know, the title of the book is High Yellow Modern Family Memoir, and it's available at any of your favorite retailers. Um, it's currently out right now, published by the University of Georgia Press. And I've, I've just gotten some wonderful, wonderful feedback from folks who have um, read the book. And I'm, I'm really looking to be in dialogue with more folks, more families, um, no matter what they look like, no matter what their identities, no matter what their family construct looks like about the book. Um, I'm really looking forward. That's the best part after writing the book is really getting into a great conversation and a dialogue with readers and hearing what they're And listeners. And you listeners, know, this is absolutely. A, this is a listener medium. So absolutely. people don't listen listeners. to podcasters because they're great readers. Yes. But I want to tell you guys, and Audible is a sponsor on our shows. So High Yellow by Steve Majors is also available on Audible. So People who are listeners listen to podcasts. So go ahead and check out High Yellow by Steve Majors on Audible. There is an Audible version. Can I ask you who reads it? Do you read it yourself or did you have an author read it or a, a we, voiceover read it? We have a voiceover reader. Um, I did get approval of him. Um, he is a person of color. Um, that was something that I did insist on and he does a remarkable job. So I'm so excited for your listeners to, to, to hear it. I am too, because, you know, the, I want to be clear when people come on radio and especially podcasts, you're not really hitting a lot of readers. You know, I think the statistics show 20% of all podcast listeners actually read and buy books. But when it goes to audiobooks, you know, the number goes up to like 85% of podcast listeners listen to, you know, the old way of saying is books on tape or, you know, did the digital version. And I love that. Like, I, I would say like, you know, you are so eloquent and well-spoken. You could have read it beautifully, but I'm really excited after meeting you. I've got Audible on my computer here and I'm going to pre-order it um, so that I can get, you know, this book. I want to listen to it. Great. And I, I hope your listeners do as well. I hope they find it helpful and um, fulfilling for them as it was for me to write. And um, again, uh, whether you're listening to it um, or, or picking it up or listening to it and reading it at the same time, I'm really looking forward to hearing everybody's feedback on it. Absolutely. Well, and that's the thing about all of this is there's a choice. You know, we get to choose whether we want to read or be read to. You know, there's a choice on whether we, you know, and giving our kids, you know, I, I talk a lot about parenting on these shows, whether it's the coach show or motherhood or military mom, the whole thing is choice. It comes down to choice. What do you choose? Do you choose to be happy? Do you choose to be loving? Do you choose to love from afar? Because that's a lot better than cutting people off. That's really painful. When I think about cutting off family members that, that I can't guard my heart from, that's really painful. But if I send them loving energy, loving thoughts, and, you know, maybe a Christmas card <laughs> rather than, you know, a phone call, I can still love and do the verb, you know, do the actions of love, but keep myself safe. And I think if we teach our kids nothing else than how to love people from afar and keep our hearts safe above else, guard your heart, nobody's saying go and get beat up by your family. Yeah. And what a wonderful, I mean, that would, nothing would make me feel better than to hear from folks who listen to the book um, and told me that it inspired them to, um, you know, reunite in their, with 
estranged family members, but in healthy ways, yes. healthy ways where they have guarded their heart. Right. Um, in safe ways. In safe ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because you know what, that does nobody any good. You know, we've got only a couple minutes left, but I want to just, this is really important to me because I went back because of the sake of family and some relationships or because we were blood, I went back and got repeatedly beat up emotionally, sometimes physically, and this didn't do anybody any good. And here I was, I thought I was being this loving being. And then like, I went to therapy and of course learned like, no, this is not being loving because being loving to others also has to include being loving to yourself. And it is not selfish to withdraw or back away from anyone who hurts us, anyone who makes us feel less than and anyone who dims our light, because that's not why we're here. Absolutely. You know, and I'll tell you, Sandra, that, you know, as I wrote the book, you know, there were some difficult portions of it, some difficult chapters in which I wrote some things about family members that were probably, you know, uh, I don't know if you'd call them less than flattering, but they were difficult memories, Sure. you know, and for me, I think this idea of, of being true to yourself, so much of my life I spent, you know, denying who I was, you know, accepting other people's narrative about my own racial identity, about my family history. There were many secrets that I kept. And for me, this was um, taking charge of my identity, taking charge of the narrative of my family story, not being beholden or being held hostage by secrets and feeling free ultimately after um, sort of reclaiming that story. That was important for me. Well, and I think especially a lot of littles out there, I'm the youngest in the family, you know, the youngest girl. And I can tell you the search for identity as a little, meaning the little ones in the family, the younger ones, the ones that come farther down the line, that is much harder than the older ones. Because the older ones are like the truth sayers in the family. Like they were older, they remember it, they have the blah, blah, blah. You were just little, you don't remember. You're there's a lot of um innate invalidation of the younger children in the family to have remembered things incorrectly. And it's like, no, your experience and your brother or your sister's experience within the very same household can be markedly different. Yeah. And that's what I found where my, my olders had a different view of what went on. And I'm like, uh, no, <laughs> and having the ownership over your own experience is what it's all about. Because we all went through COVID, right? Yeah. And COVID in my house was a miracle. I got time with my teen boys that I never would have gotten otherwise I got time with my dad. We had family dinners that weren't ripped apart by soccer and baseball and basketball and dance, all these things. So my experience, and I was going through cancer treatments. So I had my family around me, the family that I designed and I chose mm. in, a, in addition to some biologics, because you could only let people in your house who were really close to you, right? You're not going to take that COVID risk by letting people in. So to me, it was a wonderful family bonding experience. Look at all the stories out there that weren't 
bonding experiences that, you know, really blew apart. I think it magnified if you had a good, happy, healthy family, you had a good, happy, healthy COVID. If you had fractures in there, it just blew those fractures apart. We all went through the same experience and had completely different experiences, right? Yeah. And I, you're right. I think that has been the experience that, that that's what this sort of pandemic has taught us that we really have to make those choices about who are the most important people in our lives. Um, You know, practically when people were huddling in quarantine pods, you had to choose. And I think it also forced us just emotionally to make those decisions. Who, who is our family? Who are the most important people in our lives that we need to bring closer to us? And who are those maybe on the fringes that, you know, can stay within our radius, um, but that we have to make a choice and say, um, it may not be physically or emotionally safe right. um, for you to be in close proximity, for us to be in close relationship with each other. Right. And that's, we accept that as health with physical health. And maybe we can translate that to also emotional health. So I want to thank you, Steve Majors of High Yellow. I had never heard that term and I Googled it and I looked it up and I'm like, wow, yeah, that's, that's, you know, um, an interesting title. I like, I really like it. And I love that they called him paled faced or mixed race or light, bright, almost white. And I'm going to say light, bright, almost white light, because I don't care about your skin color, but your soul shines brightly. Your love radiates across the screen. And so if you're out there and you're struggling and, you know, you have experiences like Steve Majors had, and you're trying to find your identity, trying to find yourself, and you struggle with some of these things, please get a copy or listen to on Audible, High Yellow by Steve Majors, because if you loved what you heard today, you're going to love his book. It can be found in Relationships, Parenting, and Personal Development. You'll be so glad you did. We'll be back again next week with another great episode. On behalf of Sandra Beck, we want you to get out there today to make more money with less time and effort so you can live the life you want. Tune in next week for more tips, tricks, and techniques on Coach.